they tell the story of a Jewish grandmother who once gets on to a crowded bus and she discovers that she doesn't have any money to pay the fear. The driver initially tries to be firm with her, but then she places her hand delicately over her chest and she murmurs, she says, if you knew what I had, you'd be nicer to me. The driver caves in, he lets her ride for free. She tries to push her way through the crowded aisle, but people won't move. It's packed. She places her hand again delicately over her chest and she tells the people standing there, if you knew what I had, you'd be much nicer to me. The crowd parts like the Red Sea. They let her walk down the aisle. There are no seats. The seats are taken. She turns to somebody sitting in one of the seats and says, You know, if you knew what I had, you'd be nicer to me. Several people jump up and she sits down. A woman who has been watching this approaches her and says, I know this is none of my business, but what do you have? You keep on saying, if you had what I had, if you knew what I had, you'd be much nicer to me. What is it that you have? And the Jewish grandmother smiles and says, Chutzpah. There are different types of chutzpah in the world. There are different forms of chutzpah. But tonight we want to address a peculiar, a unique type of chutzpah. The chutzpah of a people to endure throughout the ages, notwithstanding tremendous trials and tribulations. And the analysis of this, the discussion of this, comes about through a very interesting and strange mitzvah articulated in the portion of Truma in the book of Exodus. If you'll open your curriculum right under the video, source number one are the verses from the portion of Truma where the commandment is given to Moses that the Jewish people build a sanctuary. And in the sanctuary they have an ark. In the Holy of Holies they built an ark, an Aron. In the ark would be placed the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And then the verse says that the ark had four rings on its four corners. There were four rings. And then verse 13 in chapter 25 of Exodus reads, You shall make poles of cedar wood and cover them with gold. You shall bring the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles of the ark shall be in the rings, they shall not be removed from it. This is the commandment that the poles should never be removed from the ark. So what is the mitzvah we have here recorded in the Bible and the Torah? The ark, the aron, 
as I said, housed the two tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments. It also housed the Torah, a Torah scroll that was written by the hand of Moses. It was also placed in the ark, and it sat in the innermost chamber of the sanctuary, a place so holy that only the Kohen Gadol, only the high priest, was permitted entry, and only on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. When the people of Israel were in the desert, they built a portable sanctuary, a tabernacle, a mishkan. This they carried along with them on their journey from Egypt to the Holy Land. At each of their 42 encampments, the tabernacle, the mishkan, was assembled and then dismantled when time came to journey on. For this reason, all of the vessels in the sanctuary had specially made carrying poles. They were inserted in rings affixed to their sides in order to carry them from camp to camp. So when the time came to dismantle the sanctuary and move on on the next journey, they would place the poles in the rings of each vessel and the carriers would then carry the furniture, the vessels of the sanctuary. Regarding the ark, yet there is a specific commandment which we just read. And it's a commandment which is counted as one of the 613 mitzvahs. Never to remove the carrying poles. Despite the fact that the tabernacle was often not moved for many months. Yet, lo yasuru mimenu. The poles could never be removed from the ark. Indeed, this law also applied and remained in force for the 381 years when the ark stood in the holy temple in Jerusalem and never moved. Still, for close to four centuries, the poles were always in the ark. And this prohibition against removing the poles is unique to the ark. We don't find any such commandment regarding any other vessel of the sanctuary. The candelabra, the table, the altars, they had rings. They also had poles which were used when they needed to carry these vessels. But there was no commandment that the poles must always remain affixed to these vessels. One exception, the ark, the Aron. Here, the poles always remained affixed to the ark. They were never removed. Not in the desert, and not in Jerusalem, in the Holy Temple, and not in the sanctuary when it was erected in Israel before they built the Holy Temple. The poles were always affixed to the ark. And the obvious question is, what is the reason for this mitzvah? Why would the Torah prohibit the Jewish people of removing the poles from the ark when the poles were only used to carry the ark from one place to another place. What type of problem is there if you remove the poles from the rings until you don't need them to carry the ark? On the contrary, take your home as an example. If you purchase a beautiful piece of art and you hang it in your living room or your dining room, the art comes in a box, would you think it would be wise to keep the box right there in the living room or the dining room, as long as the piece of art is hanging, so that if you're going to move, you'll have there the box to be able to move it. It doesn't make sense. You put the box in which it came, in which it arrived, put it in the storage room, 
And then if you have to relocate homes one day, then you'll take it out of the storage room and you'll place the art in the box and you'll move it. But does it make sense that the box remains there continuously? This is a dining room, it's a living room. What was the logic of the fact that the poles, which are only there to transport the ark from one place to another place, should always be attached to the ark? 381 years, Gewalt. In one place, why do you need poles? Put the poles somewhere else, and if one day you have to move the ark, so then bring out the poles from the storage room, you'll put it on the ark, and you'll carry it. Throughout the generations, the commentators have analyzed this mitzvah, this commandment, and offered various explanations. Let us study some of the explanations. Source number two, Morin Avuchim. This is the guide for the perplexed written by Maimonides in the 12th century. In the third section, chapter 45, Maimonides gives this explanation. Maimonides believes that we don't want to change the form of the ark even by merely removing the poles from their rings. The ark was such a holy vessel, it was the holiest item in the sanctuary and in the temple. We do not want to change anything in it. We want to minimize our contact with it. This is what Maimonides says. Go to source number four. This is the Ashkenazic scholars, the Tosvos. In their commentary on these verses, they say this is the reason. A very similar insight like the one presented by Maimonides. Because of the holiness of the ark, God did not want us to touch, to have contact with the ark too much by removing the poles, replacing the poles, Rather, when they come to carry the ark, they immediately take, holds of the, take hold of the poles and carry it. When they come to a place and they place the ark in its proper location, they immediately leave it and go in fear from its holiness. It's an expression of awe in the presence of its holiness. So the less contact, the better. Don't start taking poles and putting them in and then taking them out. The poles are always there. When you have to carry it, you just go. You pick it up. When you have to place it back to rest, you just leave it and you don't have to touch it in any extra fashion. Source number five, the Chizkuni, one of the great biblical commentators, and he gives three reasons. The first reason he gives is similar to the reason of Maimonides and the Das Kenem. To minimize contact. The second reason the Chizkuni gives here, the simple reason is, by the poles always being in the ark, they were very tight, 
And that way, there was no problem of the poles not being firm because they were there permanently and thus tight. Dovaracher, in the second paragraph, Dovaracher, another reason, the Chizkuni says, the Chizkuni gives us a very pragmatic reason. He says... The ark was situated in the Holy of Holies. Nobody was ever there. The high priest would enter into the chamber of the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur. So therefore having the poles continuously present did not create any inconvenience. But the other vessels, let's say the altar in the courtyard, there were many people entering and leaving. If the poles were there, they would obstruct the free movement of the people, and therefore they were only used during travel. But the Holy Ark and the Holy of Holies, who cares if the poles are always there? They're not obstructing anybody's path because nobody goes into that section regardless. This is the third explanation of the Chizkuni for this mitzvah. Now, all of these explanations, the Rambam, Maimonides, the Das Kenim, the Chizkuni, Beg for more clarification. Explanation number one. Minimize contact with the ark. Is it really so bad if once in a while they just put poles onto the ark and then when the ark comes to its place they remove the poles? Explanation number two. Presented by the Chizkuni that you wanted the poles to be tight and that way, when they carry the ark, as he says, and sometimes they go up on mountains and they go through difficult terrains, it will be tight. Why was that not necessary with the other vessels of the tabernacle? The third explanation of the Chizkuni seems very pragmatic and practical. Basically, he says, leave the poles. Why not? Why not? Who cares? It's not bothering anybody. Nobody's walking there anyway. It's not obstructing your path. You don't have to come close to the ark. Who cares if the poles remain there? But is that a real reason that the poles should remain affixed to the ark continuously? Doesn't it seem a little strange, maybe even disrespectful, as though we're always traveling? Leave the ark alone. Take out the poles. Put them somewhere else. So now we come to a fourth explanation. And this is in your curriculum, source number three, Sefer Achinuch Mitzvah Tzadik Vav, the 96th mitzvah of the Book of Education. The book which enumerates and explains all of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah known as Sefer Achinuch. And he explains, he says, Mishor Mitzvah. One of the explanations, the roots behind this commandment is, L'fisha Arayn Mishkan HaTorah V'hikol Ikarenu Ukvedenu. Now, 
The Chinuch explains thus. The Ark is the home of Torah, which represents our entire foundation and glory. Therefore, we must honor it and glorify it as much as possible. That's why we can't remove the poles from the rings of the Ark. Why? Lest we suddenly need to travel with the Ark. And in haste, we may forget to assure that the poles are firmly fastened, and heaven forbid the ark will fall. But if the poles remain permanently prepared in the ark and are never removed, they are always at the sides of the ark, they're much stronger, and they will preclude any mishap. So the Chinuch again is giving us a very pragmatic explanation, that if the poles are not there, they may be in a rush, they put on the poles, the poles are not firm, and as they're carrying the ark, it may fall. The poles may slip out of the rings. But if the poles are always there, so they're permanent, they're fixed, they're firm, even if you have to rush and take out the ark, it's ready to move, and there's no problem that the ark will fall. So it always has to be ready if on the go, and since it always has to be ready to travel, you want to make sure that the poles are permanent and strong. The Chinuch then gives another explanation as well. But here again, we have to understand. Why then did they need the poles in the ark throughout the 381 years in the temple when they weren't moving it around? According to the Chinuch. And also, why doesn't this apply to the other vessels in the temple? The other vessels in the temple, we also have to honor. They're not as holy as the ark, but certainly we have to honor them too. So why aren't we concerned with them that they too might fall? Now, as I said, the Chinuch gives a second explanation. And what he says is, that all of the vessels in the temple had a unique form and image which represented certain spiritual truths. And when a person would look at them, these ideas would become aroused within him or her. And God did not want that that image should be gone even for a moment. So the image of the ark had to include the ark with the poles. But here again the question is, what about the other vessels? (laughs) If the, if the poles were part of the other vessels as well, why can they be detached from the poles? So we have to explain that according to the Chinuch, somehow it's only in the ark that one needs the image of the ark always together with the poles. That's part of the message of the ark. But why? Here we come to explore the words of the Chinuch from a deeper point of view, from a deeper perspective. As we know, every idea in Torah has many layers. An explanation that on one level is very pragmatic, the same explanation on another level is psychological. On another level, it's transcendental. On another level, it's mystical. The same idea, but on different layers, on different levels, plays itself out in different fashions. Let's take this idea of the Chinuch and explore it from a deeper layer, from a deeper perspective. What is the Chinuch saying? The Chinuch is telling us that the ark always has to be ready to travel. 
You never know when you're going to have to go. When you're going to have to move. And therefore, we are frightened that if the poles are not fixed, they may be placed in haste and the ark will, God forbid, fall. And therefore, we just keep the poles there so that at a moment's call, at a moment's call, we can begin to travel. Indeed, here we come to discover that for the ark to be an ark the way it's supposed to be, it must always have poles which demonstrate its readiness to travel immediately. And this expresses itself in two, on two levels, on two levels, in the theological and historical dimension and in the individual dimension. The first idea has its origin in the commentary of Hamek Dover, source number six, by the Nitziv, by Reb Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the Rosh Hashiva of Valozhin, who explains this in source six. Om nambetam adover nire de bala hagid lano de koya cha'aren u atayre v'unisa b'chaldor v'adar mimakam l'makam heichon she Yisrael goylem. The commandment is telling us that the power of the ark is the Torah and it's carried generation after generation from place to place wherever Jews are exiled. Unlike the table representing royalty of Israel. The altar representing priesthood of Israel. These two powers only exist when the Jews are in their homeland. A similar idea is articulated in one previous generation. Actually, just a few decades earlier in the commentary of Rabbi Shimshin Rafal Hirsch in source number 7 on these verses. Now let us explain what both Rav Hirsch Rabbi Hirsch in his commentary and the Nitziv in the Hamik Dovar are telling us here. They are essentially explaining that chutzpah I began with. The chutzpah and the ability of the Jewish people to endure throughout the ages. In 1990, the Dalai Lama, who had lived in exile from Tibet since the 1950s, invited a group of scholars, Jewish scholars, to visit him in North India. The purpose of the visit, realizing that he and his followers might have to spend many more years in exile before they were allowed back to Tibet, the Dalai Lama pondered the question, how does a way of life sustain itself far from home? He realized that one group above all others had faced and solved the problem, the Jews. So he turned to the Jews for advice. The story is told in Roger Kamenetz's book, The Jew and the Lotus, about their visit, the visit of the group of Jews to the Dalai Lama. The encounter was fascinating because it showed that even the Dalai Lama, leader of a group, Buddhism, far removed from Judaism, the Far East, recognized that there is something unparalleled in the Jewish capacity to stay faithful to the terms of its existence, despite 
dispersion and dispersion for thousands of years. What did the Jews not tell the Dalai Lama? What was the answer? What is the answer to the dilemma of the Dalai Lama? I want to share with you a cute story. Victoria, the queen of the British Empire, once visited the city of Hanover in Germany. Her husband, Prince Albert, came from Hanover. The royal couple had arrived there for a vacation before the expected birth of her first child. But suddenly, labor began two months earlier than expected. The great Jewish philanthropist, Moses Montefiore, a financial advisor to the British government, came to the court at Hanover at that crucial moment. The doctors, members of the court, were at their wit's end. Why? If the child of Queen Victoria would be born on German soil, his succession to the throne might be in question, since he would be considered a German citizen and would not be eligible for the crown. That afternoon, Moses Montefiore went to pray in the synagogue of Rabbi Nathan Adler, who was the rabbi of Hanover in Germany. After prayers, he told Rabbi Adler about the royal dilemma, and it was getting late. Vos Tutman, what do you do? Rabbi Adler suggested that the queen be brought immediately to an English ship, which should travel out three kilometers from the German shore to international waters. A child born in international waters on the British ship would be regarded as having been born on English soil. Sir Moses Montefiore quickly related this advice of Rabbi Adler, the rabbi of Hanover, to the court. Queen Victoria was rushed to the famous British warship, the Ark Royal, which was nearby. That night, she gave birth to her son. He became known later, much later, because the queen ruled until her death at the age of 82, but he became known later as King Edward VII. The story has an interesting continuation. The queen never forgot how a very sticky and difficult situation was averted by the ingenious rabbi of Hanover. And during her long reign, the glory of England was at its greatest peak. The sun never sets on the British Empire, was truly said at that time. Now years later, Queen Victoria's attention was directed to an announcement issued by the Duke's Place Synagogue in London. It was requesting applicants and to submit their applications to be submitted for the prestigious position of being a rabbi in that synagogue. Duke's Place Synagogue it was called. It was publicized internationally and many renowned rabbis applied for the position in London. The Queen sent a note to the synagogue saying... Since Rabbi Adler saved me when I was in trouble in Hanover, he will certainly be the right guardian and leader for your congregation. And so it was. When the queen's advice was accepted, Rabbi Adler was chosen as the rabbi of the duke's 
placed synagogue in London, she further suggested that this position wasn't enough. He should become chief rabbi of England, better yet, chief rabbi of the British Empire. A bill was raised in Parliament in order to decide whether the empire required a chief rabbi. When put to a vote, a substantial majority chose Rabbi Adler as the chief rabbi of the British Empire, a post he filled with honor and distinction for 45 years, until his death in 1890, 11 years before Queen Victoria. This story is an anecdote, but it represents a truth. The true anecdote represents a historical truth. Somehow the Jews have become great experts on how to maintain identity while on foreign soil. It seemed that the right person to be able to give the British Queen advice how to maintain her child's identity as the future king of Britain, while on foreign soil, the right person for that was a Jew. After all, we have become experts how to maintain our identity on foreign soil. So I guess the Dalai Lama followed Queen Victoria's example and asked the Jews how to maintain the identity of his Tibetan nation on foreign soil. But how? How did the Jews maintain their identity? Not after 50, 60 years, the struggle of Buddhas, the struggle of the Dalai Lama today. After centuries and centuries and millennia, and under impossible circumstances, they were not allowed to maintain their identity in peace and tranquility. Often had to endure savage suffering, if not targeted for abuse and annihilation. How did they do it? And the answer is in this mitzvah, in the portion of Truma. When the Bible says, when the Torah says, The poles of the ark shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall never be removed from the ark. If the poles were not continuously placed, situated on the sides of the ark, we may have entertained the notion that the power, the strength of the ark, and what it represented, containing the tablets and the Torah scroll, its strength applied only to a particular location. The poles never being removed from the ark demonstrated an existential truth which lie at the heart of Jewish identity. That theology, Torah, was not linked to geography. The power, strength, validity, and relevance of the Ark applied to every location, to every milieu, and under all circumstances. You remember that story of Henrich Heine, the German poet, the Jewish-German poet who converted to Christianity in order to be able to get into the university as a portal to university. And they said that he was once discussing with German colleagues, the Jewish people. And they scoffing at the Jewish people, saying, and this is in the 1700s, they don't even have the homeland. They don't even have a national identity. They have no homeland. And Henrich Heine said, you're making a mistake. They do have a homeland. It is a portable homeland, and it's called the Torah. Even Haina understood this, that the Torah was a homeland. It was a portable homeland. A Jew, wherever he or she lived, came home tired, exhausted from a hard day of work, 
He went into the base medrash, he went into the synagogue, he went into his home and he opened up a Gemara. He opened up a Talmud and he entered into his homeland. He was in Jerusalem, he was in the Holy Temple, he was in the Holy of Holies. A Jew may have worked hard all week and came home at night, worked hard all day, came home at night and opened up a Chumash, opened up a Mishnayis, opened up another book of Torah, and he or she or their children went into a portable homeland. So the poles situated at the sides of the ark represented the fact that the ark is not connected to a particular location. The power, truth, and depth and majesty of Torah is never limited to a particular location, not even the location of the land of Israel, of Jerusalem, of the Holy Temple, of the Holy of Holies. Look at the ark and see right near it there are poles. Because wherever Jews will travel, wherever Jews will go, if they will take with their ark, if they will take with their Torah, they will be in the Holy of Holies. They will be in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the Holy Temple, in the Holy of Holies. The Jews understood very well that God being everywhere can be found anywhere. He is a wandering God. God cannot be confined to a specific place. Holiness was not linked to a physical space on the surface of the earth, but to a spiritual place in the human heart. Thus the Talmud says wherever Israel went, the divine presence went with them. So the uniqueness of the ark having its poles connected to its rings, continuously represents the fact that the essence of Torah is that it's not linked to a particular location. It travels with those who carry it, with those who study it and implement it and internalize it and analyze it and breathe it and live with it and dance with it. The Torah was given to the Jewish people always with poles to be able to take it everywhere and wherever they will be, it will allow them to be in their homeland. It is a portable homeland. This is the secret of their chutzpah, of their ability, to be able to travel everywhere and be everywhere and yet retain their identity, notwithstanding dispersion, exile, persecution, and sometimes in excruciatingly painful ways, because they always knew the secret of the ark. It came together with poles. And as long as you had that ark which traveled with you wherever you went, in the brightest of times and the darkest of times, bleak moments and extraordinarily beautiful moments, the Jew went into the world of Torah, and he or she was a king or a queen, a prince or a princess. There they were back home. I, they were in exile. I, they were dispersed. Here they had a national identity. They connected with each other through it. They connected with their history through it. They connected to God through it. All of Jewish history came alive in the literature, in the study of Torah. And it's true till today. In communities where the ark was taken, where Torah was and is studied, the identity of the children, the identity of families, of communities, not only survives but thrives. 
And then there is, finally, the last idea, embedded on a deeper layer in the words of the Chinuch, not on a historical or theological level, but on an individual level. And this idea was presented by the Lubavitcher Rebbe at a Fabrengen, at a gathering in 1972. He said, the Ark represents the Torah and represents the Jew who learns Torah, who has within himself the tablets, the Torah scroll. And sometimes this Jew, situated in the Holy of Holies, in the most segregated and aloof, sublime location in the world, may think, I want to remain detached from my fellow Jews who are maybe more ignorant. I want to remain detached from the world around me. I don't have a real relationship with Jews who did not have the privilege of developing a sensitivity and an appreciation for the light of Torah. So God tells every Jew and says, if you want to be an ark, remember you have to have poles attached to you. If you do not have poles attached to you which allow you to travel at a moment's call, you're not an ark. This is not the way the ark has to be. The ark always has to have, always has to have poles attached to it. So that at a moment's call, the ark is ready to be moved and taken to places where it has to be taken. As the Chinuch says, the reason we need the poles is because at any moment the ark might be taken and you have to rush. That's what the Chinuch says, you have to rush. You're going to do it in haste and it might fall. So therefore you have to always be ready because when you want to travel, you want to be able to travel immediately. What does this represent individually, spiritually? If there's a soul thirsting for the word of God at the end of the earth, it is the ark who must be ready at a moment's call to leave his sacred chamber and carry the divine wisdom with him. Even when the ark is in its chamber, he must always have his carrying poles inserted in his rings. He must always be ready to set out at a moment's notice. Always be ready to go out and remember his or her responsibility to take the inner wisdom and light and inspiration and bring it at a moment's call. To somebody who is yearning for that depth, for that meaning, and for that fulfillment. Have a wonderful evening.